Hello, and welcome to a new episode of A Grand Reflection. This one's going to be a little interesting. Um, there is going to be some things that might be hard to hold. And I say that on a couple of different fronts. On one front, I'm going to maybe uh, dive deep into a few of the traditions that we have and take a critical look at them. Uh, another thing is uh, I am going to get a little weird as far as boundaries of identity, as far as um, things that are acceptable in society or not, um, getting into the shadow side of things. And so with that in mind, I just want to put a quick disclaimer at the beginning that if there is anything that I say that freaks you out or weirds you out or makes you uncomfortable, first off, that's a good place to be in. That means that we're finding something new, that um, something is rattling things around a little bit and causing us to have a new perspective. So it's not necessarily bad, but that being said, you don't have to take anything that I say uh, 100%. Uh, you can take little pieces and leave other pieces. That is totally fine. And if there's anything in this podcast episode that uh, leads to more questions that you want clarification on or that you want to hear a little bit more of the process of how I came to those conclusions, then feel free to contact me. I am always up for conversations like that. So uh, with that disclaimer said, let's go ahead and get started. All right. So originally this episode I wanted to release for Halloween, and it was going to be very straightforward. I was going to do it on death and the underworld and slasher films and, and all that sort of stuff. And I was going to get my friend Spooky on because Spooky is someone uh, who I've known since high school who is very interested in horror in general um, and interested in the weirdness of life, the, the strange things that other people want to uh, avoid and not get into. And um, they also had just moved to Portland, uh, which is a lot closer to me. So... The idea was to get a time, whether remotely or in person, to uh, have this deep conversation about uh, all these things. And we kind of went back and forth a few times. Uh, it was hard to get things to work a little bit. And then in the midst of that, as we're still trying to figure things out, an old friend of ours named Kim, uh, she passed away from cancer. Now, me and Spooky hadn't um, contacted Ken in a long while. In fact, I think most people hadn't. Uh, she just kind of gone on her own way. I don't know a lot of the details, but uh, I had tried to about, oh, I would say a year ago. I tried to get back in contact with her and just ran into dead ends. And um, so it was something that was very interesting when we found out about her death because we had both realized that we would have liked to, if there was an avenue, get back in touch with her. And so the her death was really interesting in the sense that we weren't grieving in a traditional sense for her. Uh, our life wasn't up upended by her passing. Uh, in fact, mostly it was just the same as it had always been. And I think that that was some of the reason that it was difficult was because we knew she was somebody who used to mean a lot to us. And in some ways still meant a lot to us, but not so much anymore, at least not in an active way. And 
we'd always meant to get back in touch with her and now she's just gone and so as we were both dealing with that and grieving over that uh through conversations with spooky i started to develop this idea of hauntings and hauntings are interesting because i think you know there there are the traditional spiritual hauntings and i think i'll probably get into that later but as far as uh, everyday hauntings, the, the type that we experience when someone leaves us, they are a lot more internal, I think. They have less to do with some force out there and more to do with our memories of the person and the absence that that creates. And so a haunting usually involves weirdly the parts of the person that we loved the most the parts of them that affected us the most so i I guess not necessarily loved but sometimes you can be haunted by the memory of someone uh who did you tremendous harm too so maybe maybe it's not really loved maybe it's more uh affected would be a better word but these parts that of them that affected us the most are the parts that we uh, feel the absence of and in that absence uh, creates this sort of uh, haunting in memory and and continuing to see them even though they're gone. Uh, And sometimes that can be really uh, straightforward, but sometimes it's uh, very subtle. You know, it can be everything from hearing their voices or even seeing them. I know, for instance, uh, after my dad passed away, I used to always, always, and still do sometimes, uh, see him in Strangers on the Street. Uh, all it would take is some guy with a bit of a pot belly and a salt and pepper beard cutting a goatee with a baseball cap. And I would immediately, my brain would interpret it as him. Uh, so, so there's those kinds that are a little more explicit, but there's also the implicit ones, uh, the ways like uh, maybe you want to say a joke and you know the person would get it, but there's nobody to get it anymore. Or a certain memory that you have that there's no one to reminisce with. Um, These sorts of things, they do have a haunted feel to them. This ghostly afterimage of this person's life. And as I was talking to Spooky about this, I came to realize, and and, and he posed this interesting question, which was, well, can somebody alive haunt you? And I realized yeah, definitely, because Spooky, you haunted me for a while. Um, see, me and Spooky, we weren't always uh, close. And and I don't mean that by, like, we didn't used to be close. I mean, we used to be close. And then uh, there was this good span of time where we kind of went our separate ways. And then we got close again. And because of that, there was a good period of my life where Spooky haunted me. And what I mean by that is there's those memories of the person who's no longer there, uh, those jokes told, those uh, contexts shared, um, memories, all those sort of things kind of swirling together into this uh, person who's not there, uh, who kind of echoes in your brain. Uh, Sometimes these hauntings can be loud enough that you almost go like, oh, so-and-so would have loved this, or... Uh, I wish, I wish they were here, kind of stuff. And so I came to this realize that, that this realization that spooky haunts me as well, and 
um, that's when stuff started getting a little blurry. We started going off into this conversation about like what hauntings really look like and uh, recognized that it is sort of the second brain within you in some ways. Uh, you have moments where you think as if they were thinking. So it's sort of, uh, in some ways, an act of empathy. You're stepping outside of your own ego and identity, your own character, and stepping into theirs momentarily as if they were there. Uh, but I guess the real question at the end of the day is, what does that mean for um, your own personal identity, right? Because cause really, that is just your own brain working. It is you, even though it's masquerading as them. And there's an interesting thing apart that where there, uh, there's a part of that where there's a transmutation that, that's a little hard to identify at first, but our memories are imperfect. And so inherently, these hauntings of these people who are no longer in our lives, they are still growing and evolving and changing. Um, I was talking to my sister about this, and I, I recognized, like, the dad that I know is different than the dad that she knows. And even more so, as time has passed, the narrative that I've told about my father and the narrative that she's told about my father are, are two different narratives, and those have uh, diverged. Now, there's still a common ground there, of course. They're, they're still stemming from the same actual person that did exist, but they are permutating and evolving and changing as time moves on. And so then it gets into this really interesting thing where you start to realize there are multiple selves hiding within the selves of others that are changing. So like the me that I am is, is a single me, but, but the ways that I've impacted other people um, has sort of developed this me within their brain. And, and for some people, you know, that might be a single encounter on the street that they don't even remember. And there's just this tiny, tiny sliver of, of me hiding in them because they were changed by that encounter. But for other people that are really close to me, you know, my mom has a certain idea of who I am. And my sister has a certain idea of who I am. And Spooky has a certain idea of who I am. And they're all different. But they're all me in a certain way. They're, they're all stemming from me at the very least and, and are consistently enough me that, um, you know, uh, they can interact with me and it doesn't seem, I don't seem alien to them compared to the me that they think they're interacting with. Um, or at least not, not usually, but right, that, that can happen as well. So um, there, there's, there's kind of this weirdness of the boundaries of self that happens when you really start to think of this stuff. And me and Spooky, we were really starting to talk about it. And we realized, too, like, that also creates this certain level of indeterminacy within our own lives. Because uh, if you're familiar with quantum entanglement, there's the idea of Schrodinger's cat, who's both dead or alive. And it sounds really spooky and weird, but, but all it is is there's this thing called the observer effect when you look at a tiny, tiny particle. And the particle can look as a wave or the particle can look as a particle, but um, it becomes one when you look at it. But before you look at it, it is both and neither. It only becomes concrete once it's observed. And so there's kind of this interesting thing that we were kind of playing with, this idea of being observed by these other selves within us. And it's causing 
these branches that would otherwise not be there uh, by by being observed, even if it's self-observed, a new branch is breaking off and a new cat that's either dead or alive. Right. And these branches wouldn't have been possible if we were alone. But because we can contain communities within ourselves, um, there's these different possible branches that happen and we permutate and evolve. But we were taking this a step further, too, because part of the whole thing with quantum entanglement is this idea that things could have happened either way. And there's nothing that says that it had to be a particle or a wave, but it becomes one or the other when when you take part in it. And that creates a new reality. So, so the end effect is, um, and I guess I should backtrack here, if you're not familiar with Schrodinger's cat, the whole idea is that it's both dead or alive because either it's a particle or a wave, and it hasn't been observed yet. And if it's a wave, the there's a vial that breaks and the cat dies, or if it's a particle, well, that's one version of Schrodinger's cat. There's also stuff with radioactivity. Uh, <laughs> you could go down a big rabbit hole. The long and short of it is by observing, you make you decide a certain result, and then the cat either dies or it doesn't. And so... Um, the, the theory, this, this is where a lot of multiverse theories come from, because the idea is that there's nothing that says that it has to be a particle or a wave. And, and according to some theories, it is both and it always is both. And by observing it, you're just branching off into another version of the multiverse. So there's, there's a multiverse where the cat's alive and there's a multiverse where the cat's dead. There's a universe there, there's a universe there, multiple universes happening all at the same time. And so me and Spooky were thinking about this and we realized like, wow. Uh, this kind of happens in people and that does get a little strange and hard to grapple with the idea that the you that's you is sort of created by random chance in some ways you know um, I well this is a great example part of the reason that me and Spooky became really close was because I had a blood bacteria junior year of high school and in senior year I had lost a lot of my friend groups and I was uh, still still recovering from that. So I was very tired and um, a, a lot of health issues were going on. I didn't have as much energy for friends. And there was a, so, so there was kind of like a, a lower, you know, I couldn't be as active. And uh, Spooky, who was also part of some of the same friend groups, uh, he always had a, a little bit of that because he uh, dealt with depression. And because they dealt with depression, they uh really had to uh, deal with limits of energy and that really vibed really well first off just because uh i would cancel then they would cancel and uh it would kind of do this back and forth but none of it was ever taken personally because we both just kind of knew that's just how it goes sometimes um the other end of it though is because of spooky's interest in the macabre and the strange and the paranormal uh and the shadow I think even more so, maybe that, that gets it to the, the core of it, is that uh, they were really interested, or, or not interested, but okay with uh, my heaviness uh, that came out of that, because I had almost died. Um, they were a little less averse to that. So uh, all that happened, and there's this relationship in this way that I've been changed, and this way that Spooky's been changed because of this relationship. And... Um, none of that would have happened if I didn't get sick. Uh, 
But if you think of how diseases are spread, how you get things, um, the whole reason I got sick had started from a strep throat. And that's just a, you know, that's just a, uh, a little microorganism hanging out on some surface. You know, if it had been that I touched something even five minutes later, maybe the organism hadn't survived on that surface any longer and I would have been fine. Uh, there's a tremendous uncertainty to all of life like this. Uh, if I had not gotten sick, uh, then the, I mean, there was a tremendous cascade of effects. I had chronic fatigue for 10 years after I got sick. So, uh, my life was greatly radically changed by that. And it could have not been. And if you get down to the atomic level, uh, it, it could have just as easily been the exact same actions that led up to that. And for some reason, um, you know, one little molecule hanging out in one slightly little different spot might have made it so that my immune system could handle it or, or whatever. There's a thousand different ways. But um, thinking of that in those terms, like how, di how much a person changes who you are, how much community changes who you are, uh, and how much the self really, as much as we like to think of it as a solid, singular thing, we are more, a self is more a nexus of activity than it is a separate element. And so as I started to think about all this, and I started to think about Kim, and I started to think about the ways that others affect us, naturally, uh, this whole process got contaminated uh, this pure idea of what I'm going to do with this podcast episode got contaminated with the idea of mushrooms. And I started going down that rabbit trail a bit. But because of the time frame, there was only a couple days left after Kim had passed away and after we processed it to uh, create an episode out of all of this. And we couldn't really get stuff together. There wasn't really time to record, right? So me and Spooky kind of talked it over, and I said, well, you know what? In consider considering all these hauntings, let's just have you haunt the podcast. That sounds great, right? Like, uh, we've already had conversations, so I can incorporate those conversations, and it will just be me talking, but it'll be the ghost of you coming through. And uh, so here we are. There's that. That piece is there. But to complicate it even further... This, this idea, this, this really pure distilled idea that I had of getting this thing out for Halloween just didn't happen. Um, I didn't have the energy and um, I, I couldn't figure out how to sort it all out and get it all together. And it just got rough and Halloween passed by and I didn't have it sorted out. And I sort of just thought, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just let go of that one for now. Maybe I'll let go of this Halloween podcast episode and uh shove it away until next year and i'll just move on you know uh christmas is around the corner thanksgiving is coming up uh there's a lot of cool traditions there that i can play with Let, let's just have some fun with this and so i start looking into thanksgiving and i realize that there is way 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 more overlap between thanksgiving and halloween than i thought so that's kind of the origin of this episode and uh I guess just to backtrack, the thing that really got to me, that really made me realize the connections between these things, is uh, Puritans. So um, within our public consciousness, there's kind of two events in our history that really uh, 
bring the Puritans into the forefront. The first one, obviously, is the Mayflower Landing and then the Thanksgiving meal. And then the other one is the Salem Witch Trials. And so right there, I was like, wow, this is interesting. Because um, I had just been coming off researching all this stuff for Halloween. And then the Puritans come up immediately. I'm like, Salem Witch Trials. I'm like, well, that's interesting. Okay, so now I want to go down this rabbit trail. And I'm, I'm looking through it. I'm, I'm trying to understand what's, uh, what the connection is. Because it's the same group of people. And uh, it turns out that... First off, both both of, both of them are in Salem. Math- <laughs> I'm having trouble with the words. Let me try that again. Both of them are with Massachusetts. Um, the first one is Plymouth, right? And then the next one is Salem. And those are only about a day or two ride from horse away from each other. And as far as time frame goes, they are only about 70 years apart. So realistically, they're only one lifetime away and in really close proximity distance-wise from each other. And so I started looking into uh, Thanksgiving deeper because I was like, well, what's the time frame here? How do you go from this meal of giving thanks to like burning witches? And it turns out, first off, that Thanksgiving is a lot more complicated than you'd think. Thanksgiving has a a deep and dark history. Uh, We know some of it, but we kind of gloss over it. they the puritans come in and they come to a land that's mostly abandoned and they knew that um but the narrative that they have for that is that it's mostly abandoned because uh which is a true narrative because there was a a big disease that wiped out most of the native population but the other piece of that narrative that they have is that this is God clearing the way for us, that that we are heading out into the wilderness, essentially, uh, because this is uh, a land of savages, a land uh, that's wild. And um, they mainly identify themselves with like the Israelites in the desert. And uh, this idea of coming out of Babylon, coming out of this place that is not letting them uh practice their faith that is assimilating them into this different culture and this this harder way of living uh, in the wilderness that will allow them to uh have a freedom to practice uh, what they're doing and uh part of it is that the savages are there right but part of their belief thing is that it's been cleared and uh god has cleared yeah god has cleared the path for them now the reason the path is cleared is because the Mayflower is not the first uh, ship that has landed in the area. The first ship was a few years earlier. So ships have been coming for a long, long time by this point because, um, you know, Columbus forward, right? Um, and we're talking about the 1620s now rather than uh, 1492. So, you know, you have almost 150 years of ships coming, but... Uh, the most recent wave of ships was only a, a few years before, and it absolutely decimated the Native American population. In fact, they called it the, uh, let me see, I got it here, the Great Dying. And about 90% of the population of Native Americans in that area had died by uh, 1619. And so they land in uh, 1620, and uh, immediately after, 
this giant plague sweeps through and the land is bountiful and it's empty and uh but even though it's bountiful they don't much know how to live there yet and they have a very tough first year Uh, about half of them die and they barely survive but the way that they survive is this local tribe uh the wampanoags they uh, and you know and this is the part of the story that we're a little more familiar with right is they have this harsh winter and then the native population is very kind to them and says hey this is how you work the land this is how you survive here and they teach them how to plant the corn and uh a year after that they have this thanksgiving celebration where there's the first harvest and uh, you know everybody's invited and everything is great and gratitude and thanks right um it turns out it's a little bit more nuanced than that because the wampanoag tribe actually was uh, lower in numbers and was at war with another tribe and I wish I had the name there, there I think there's a few of them actually it just kind of depends on the, the time frame and, and uh, I probably should have found that information but that's okay you can track that down if you want the important part is the tone for them of coming to this meal is more of a uh, peace treaty uh, political kind of thing like hey, we know you guys are here and we can't overtake you. This would hurt our numbers, but maybe we can all work together and we can stand against this other threat. But, uh, you know, that doesn't really last that long. Um, Pretty quickly, uh, other settlements are coming, more Puritans are coming in into like Boston and into Salem and and into these surrounding areas. And uh, within a decade rather than being this uh, this mutual exchange, which it never really was to begin with, right? Because the Puritans came in thinking that they're all savages. And uh, let me just do a quick backtrack with this. It's like the other, the other aspect of this is this idea of wilderness comes from uh, the notions of like Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by the devil or... Uh, the, the idea of being cast out from the garden and, and being into the land to toil. Uh, so, so there's like this tilled garden, this, this perfect, uh, bountiful place. And then uh, because of man's sin, you're cast out of it and you're having to toil in the dust and, and uh, be tempted by these other spirits that are not of God. So... Uh, notions of the native population were at very best that they were primitive and they needed to be taught uh, how to um, be civilized. But at very worst, we're more, uh, hey, these these are people in league with the devil. These are the evil people of the world. So uh, not, not the greatest thing to start with uh, in assumption if you're trying to <laughs> make treaties with, with people. Uh, to think that that's what they're about. But uh, within the next decade, the um, the uh, pilgrims begin to, uh, and mostly this kind of happens with John Eliot coming in in 1631, uh, try to assimilate the Native American population. So, so the idea is, um, hey, let's show you, uh, well, let's show you Jesus, and also let's show you how to um, act in a civilized society 
let's let's make you more like the Europeans. Let's make you more like us. And uh, so they started these schools and they started projects to like get the Bible uh, written in their native language and all these sort of things. But uh, meanwhile, there's a lot of things that are going on in this within the wilderness because there's still this notion of uh, grabbing the wilderness for God. And uh, so there's a lot of peace treaties and little things that go on around this time within the, the coming decades that aren't really honored and, and, and are kind of kept, but not. And, and sometimes like outright horrible. There's uh, uh, a, pretty much a whole settlement that was destroyed, like hundreds of people through fire, um, which uh, basically the, the Puritans surrounded them and uh, burned them to death in their homes. And uh, lots of instances like this where it's like these things happen, but then there's, uh, oh, but but we like you guys and we're, you know, uh, we, we want you guys to, to be a part of our customs. And, and do, you know, so, so there's kind of weird balance back and forth between peace and war. And uh, that eventually erupts into, uh, so, so there's this uh, uh, Chief Wemsutta, and, and Chief maybe isn't the best term, um, but, but I don't know at the moment a, a better term to say. The leader of the Wampanoag tribe, uh, Wemsutta, uh, has this peace treaty that goes, and it lasts basically until about 1660, to try to stay in, uh, stay, stay out of war with the Puritan population in Massachusetts and the surrounding areas. And essentially, like, he dies, and then... Uh, his brother, Metacomet, becomes the main leader. And he is uh, a lot, like, he's not interested in the peace. He's tired of the whole thing, and he wants the uh, the Europeans out. He wants the land back for his people and all this sort of stuff. And uh, he wages war, and it is disastrous. Like, a ton, a ton of Native Americans die. Um, obviously, uh, there's deaths on both sides, but it's a little imbalanced just because of like technological uh, disadvantages and things like that. Um, and he dies in 1676. They finally catch him after this like two year war that he wages. And uh, they impale his head on a spike. Uh, yeah, they, they take that impaled head on a spike and bring it to... Um, Plymouth Rock, and it, where it stays there for about 20 years, uh, just as kind of a, a, a decoration in the settlement. And so it's this context uh, that brings us to, you know, there's 1676, and then 1690 is when you get the Salem Witch Trials. And so this is the context that the Salem Witch Trials happen, and it blew my mind to think about because we tend to create separate stories out of these things. We talk about the Salem Witch Trials and what might have caused them and where they're coming from. And we talk about Plymouth Rock, but we don't talk about them together, even though there's a chronological history and a cohesive uh, set of events that, that one is leading to the other in some ways. And it, again, it's not the only thing that's leading to it, but there's a through line there to, that you can follow if, if you decide to. And... Um, so all of a sudden we have this context where um, you get to the 1690s 
And they basically destroyed the entire Native American population. And meanwhile, the land is becoming less productive because it's been generations that they've been there and they've sort of used uh, used up the soil, things like that. Um, and also, they, they had this notion of the sort of pristine wilderness that they came into, but that wasn't the truth at all. The Native American population was involved in a lot a lot of terraforming in a lot of uh intentional changes to the land in order to make it livable for themselves and these are practices practices that they learned over thousands of years and were in a delicate balance so and and some of that balance was already tipped like tipped over the scale by the time the native americans showed up like for instance um i think it's no accident that that the wampanoags brought a bunch of deer to the feast because um, one of the things, so one of the main things that the Native Americans would do is they would do controlled burns. And we're only just now realizing this, especially on the West Coast, that these are really healthy things to do for a forest that, in fact, nature takes care of it a lot of times. Um, fires just happen. But that uh, by burning on purpose, you can do... Uh, controlled burns that will get rid of the undergrowth and will clear the way for new plants to grow and uh, create open areas for grazing and all this sort of stuff. And the Native Americans did this, so there were a lot of deer around, um, as well as just a lot of very fertile soil that could be used for things like corn. So, yeah, I think it's no accident that they brought deer. But the other side to this is... Um, because they destroyed the uh, Native American population, these practices weren't happening anymore, and so the land is starting to die off. But with the Puritan worldview, one, uh, there's sort of an expectation that maybe this is a little bit more baseline, right? Like, we are in the land of death, outside of the Garden of Eden. But... There is also another recognition that, like, God creates paradise in these places that we're at because of our obedience to him. So, like, the Israelites, because of their trust in God, they receive manna. They receive uh, food and sustenance and that sort of stuff. So there's not really this recognition that, oh, maybe uh, we were wrong about these savages, and they're not really savages, but they're people that just had a different way of living and, and knew how to take care of this land like we don't um there's there, there begin to be these thoughts of uh well if the land's not working for us maybe there's something impure in us because that's the whole idea with puritans right is it's this idea of purity this idea of um making sure that you don't get contaminated with other things because that's the whole reason that they came to uh North America anyway, was they were coming out of Europe in the context of a strange division in the church that had to do with um, a king who was leveraging the church's power for political gain, for personal gain, and they felt that uh, that was an impure thing to do, that, it, that you were uh, brandishing the word of God in a way unworthy of him. And that you needed to do a life that was uh, worthy of the calling of God. 
Uh, I talked a lot about that too in uh, the truth episode where I was talking about uh, coming off of Calvinism and uh, Protestantism and this idea of um, personal accountability when it comes to your relationship with God that uh, on one hand created a tremendous religious freedom, but also made it so that the individual was the person to blame um, that there was less of an idea of community, uh, less of an idea of permeability, less of an idea of uh, um, this idea that there are things outside of you that are outside of your control, um, but that instead that you create the life that you want by your hard work, by um, doing good uh, rather than entering into mystery uh, becomes instrumental, right? Instrumental to your faith <laughs> rather than um, something to, to step into and try to understand or, or reach connection with. It, it's about uh, grasping and manipulation. Anyway, if you want to go deeper into that, you can go into that first episode. But uh, the idea at the end of the day is that uh, your works are what saves you. And if you are living in sin, uh, that sin is like a contamination that uh, you have to sort of weed out and you have to uh, be free of. And so that brings you to the witch trials where they've killed off the Native American population. And so things are still going wrong. So then it becomes turning inward of like, well, which among us needs to be rooted out? Who is it that is causing this blight among us? And the ironic part, I think, uh, <laughs> and this will get really interesting, but one solid theory that I think has a lot of merit for why the witch trials started was because on the corn, um, well, not on the corn, but on the grain, sorry, I'll have to correct myself, on the grain that they were growing, uh, which is imported for one, um, it's not the grain that's native to the land, it's, it's grain that they've brought uh, in order to do things their way, right? Uh, it has a... Um, a fungus growing on it, which is called ergot. And ergot, uh, if you're not familiar with it, is not something that you want to just be taking lightly. Um, it is where we get lysergic acid. Um, that's the main component in it, the main active component, which we distilled much later on uh, in the 1950s into LSD. Um, so <laughs> if you can imagine, um, that this theory, essentially what it is, is there's this ergot, this hallucinogenic mushroom fungus growing on their grain, and they don't recognize that that's what's there. And they start making bread out of it. And then they're eating the bread. And as they eat the bread, which is a staple of their diet, they are getting weird hallucinations. There are 
strange shakes. There's spots and blotches. Um, there's a lot of really good evidence that like all these things surrounding the Salem witch trials looks very much like the symptoms of ergot poisoning. And so there's this idea of contamination that may have actually been a, a little true in this case, but just not where they expected. Um, instead, they're looking at it through spiritual terms. They're believing that there's something that is causing God to turn his eye from their community. And they look to witches. Now, witches have an interesting past and an interesting history because in Europe, already for hundreds of years, witches have been on trial. Uh, so the Salem witch trials were not the first or only set of trials against witches. Um, they were coming off of a big history of them. They would have been very familiar with them. And they would have uh, had that within their consciousness. Uh, now, the interesting part about the Salem witch trials is that they were done without fire. So in Europe, the standard way of killing a witch uh, is burning them at the stake. But for the Salem witch trials, all but one of them were hung. So uh, the the one exception would be the last guy. You know, we all know the story where he gets uh, the stones stacked on top and then he gets uh, suffocated, essentially. Um, besides that, uh, every last one of them were, were hanged. So um, there's this interesting lack of fire. And whereas I don't think there's a total aversion to fire, within the Puritan consciousness. Um, obviously, it's been, it was used before, uh, uh, notably uh, that, that tribe that I was talking about that they surrounded a few years after the Thanksgiving feast. But um, there's something particularly about fire that develops in the consciousness of uh, the Puritan mind uh, in thinking of it as like hellfire and judgment. And there's an aversion to it, which is, Unfortunately, extremely ironic because the fire is actually what they needed, what would have restored the land. Uh, these Native American practices of controlled burning, uh, they could have stepped into that and that would have provided a bounty. And so that's where it kind of circles it back to uh, this idea of death that I had originally wanted to get with the podcast before all this contamination happened. Uh, so there we go. There's that, there's that circle of contamination. Um, that, uh, ironically, a lot of times, death, we think of something as final. We think of it as an ending. But if we can step into a different mode of consciousness, a different way of thinking, um, a circular way of thinking, like how we talked about in the creativity episode, this way of cycles and seasons, uh, death is just another part of life. And in fact, after death comes life. Uh, so the Thanksgiving feast uh, reinterpreted can be a wonderful recognition and celebration coming out of the Halloween period of uh, life returning after the deaths that had been observed. And that can be in a thousand different ways. But um, I want to do a few other tracks on this. I, I think that that's kind of the long view and whatever you want to call it of, of where I'm going with this whole thing. But, uh, let me, 
let me take a moment to, to kind of backtrack and gather my thoughts because uh, I think that there's still a lot more here. Okay, so uh, looking at my notes and I've got this piece of paper that is a set of absolutely tangled mess. To be honest, it looks kind of like a mycelia ne network um, of mushrooms. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. But uh, I'm looking at this mind map that I've created and uh, one of the, the things that I think I want to hit is uh, the connection here between this fear of nature and these cycles and seasons as well. Um, so obviously it's not completely black, black and white. Like the Puritans are still using the cycles and the seasons to create crop and to create a harvest. But there's this other end, which is the fear of the wild, of the wilderness, of uh, the things that are out there. Um, you know, in the forest or amidst the trees. And, you know, that's that's where a lot of the witch stuff comes from. Interestingly, too, there is sort of this suppression of the feminine that I'll probably get into a little bit later. But uh, talking about moon cycles and, you know, part, part of the idea of witches has to do with this sort of wild woman archetype that uh, occurs over and over again um, that, that is very, very much feminine. But uh, the other side to that is a lot of these old ideas of the devil, these traditional ideas like with the pitchfork and the, well, maybe not the pitchfork as much. That's a little separate, I think. Um, but actually, I think adapted, come to think of it, because a pitchfork has to do with the harvest, has to do with, um, you know, uh, hay and, and used as a tool to uh, bring crop about. But uh, more so, uh, this idea of a horned god, that there's a lot of direct uh, comparisons between the idea of the devil as seen with the, the cloven hooves and uh, the the horns and all that, that that's very similar to the god Pan or, or to satyrs in general, which are nature spirits. And um, going even back further, there's this sort of archetypal horned god that a lot of other gods seem to... It, it's sort of a... Like when you look at a language, uh, eventually they'll come up with like a, a theoretical root word that's like no longer in use, but they can kind of make a really good guess at it because of other words that are in use that must have evolved from it. It's like the, the proto, you know, like proto-Indo-European. Like we don't have that language, but we know a bit of what it must have been like. Um, there's sort of the same sort of thing with a uh, this horned god archetype. And... Interestingly, from a lot of these horn god archetypes is where we get the horn of plenty, that uh, the cornucopia for uh, the cornucopias for is it cornucopia or cornucopia? Eh, anyway, the the horn of plenty that we use as the, at the tables for Thanksgiving, uh, especially that one comes from the uh, myth of Zeus with his um, uh, supposed upbringing when he was a kid. He was raised by a goat. And he accidentally snapped off the goat's horn and 
the horn's blessed where it will always have a bounty of food that spills out from it. But uh, that fits really well with these nature archetypes anyway. They are sort of um, the spirits of of the land, of the forest, uh, of nature in general that provide the abundance of it, that um, give it its magic, that, that allow the, the uh, fruits to produce and all that sort of stuff. Um, interestingly, there's also a huge sort of, uh, within these archetypes, set of cycles and seasons. Um, one of the big ones is uh, Demeter from Greek myth, who is the mother of Persephone. And Persephone, uh, the story goes, uh, gets sort of sort of abducted, but also, also kind of sort of not. Like she falls in love with him, with of Hades, who is the master of the underworld. And Demeter, her mom, gets so upset that uh, she causes, because she's the one in charge of everything that blooms and uh, everything that comes from fruition. She's the god of the harvest. And so she causes everything to die. But uh, Persephone says, like, hey, I got I to gotta go. Sorry, Hades. And Hades says, well, here, just have one last meal. And he hands her a pomegranate. And she ends up eating six of the seeds, the story goes, of the 12 that were given. And what it means is, because apparently if you eat the food of the underworld, you're stuck in the underworld. But what it means in the case of Persephone is it means that because six seeds out of 12, six months of the year, she's down there and the other six, she comes back up. And so you have the cycles and the seasons, but uh, there's that relationship to kind of hell and the underworld uh, sort of revolving around these nature spirits where there's like a plus side and a minus side. Um, an interesting addendum to that though, is uh, just forest spirits in general, a, a lot of uh, traditions all across the world have these archetypes of these little forest people um, that, that live there. They're, they're almost always smaller and they're almost always unseen and they are almost always magical and provide blessings in some way or another. And this is where we get the notion of elves. Uh, just to be clear, not the elves like uh, Lord of the Rings elves. He did his own particular spin on those. But more traditional elves, if you think like uh, Santa's elves, kind of kind of elves, uh, which we'll probably get into <laughs> uh, next month. But um, interestingly, too, the uh, Wampanoag tribe actually had a very similar. Uh, shoot, did I not write down their names? Oh, here we are. Uh, the Mikomo, which are forest people who specifically hung around uh, fir trees. But, uh, you know, that that's neither here nor there. The, the point being is a lot of these old ideas sort of get assimilated. Um, there's a through line between the assimilation of uh, the native people and these old beliefs. It, it's this idea that, like, you can't get rid of them, so you try to make them like you. Uh that there's like two options, right? There's um, there's either destroy it or make it the same. And that seems to be a big, big idea within Puritan values that really come through, especially as the years go on in Halloween myths. Uh, so if you think of uh, a little bit later with like the Gothic era, all of these classic monsters that we dredge up for Halloween uh, we have a werewolf, Dracula, 
Um, we have uh, zombies, which are a little later. Zombies actually happen. Uh, they're fairly recent in sort of the quote-unquote canon. But uh, I think they fit here too. Um, these guys all have this thing in common of this idea of an impurity getting into the body. You know, so werewolves, you have this animal nature that comes out, right? And then uh, if you get bit, right, uh, somebody else gets it too. And you have this idea of uh, the vampires who have these weird, uh, you know, it's like, again, there's this sexual undertone, this fear of sexuality that kind of comes through that, uh, and then you get infected by the bite. So, so you have that and then um again the zombies are a little later obviously sexy zombies aren't a thing <laughs> but it still involves the body it's the body decaying something about the rot of the physicality um and then uh what comes in the wake of that right so so it's a corrupted physicality and then in the wake of that is something that is not quite human anymore so it's like this notion that the humanity is related to the purity somehow like like we will not be human anymore if these lines are crossed if these ways of being become different then we will be lost um and and again i see those three lines with this this idea of assimilating the native population is this like you you cannot go too far on the other side uh, you have to be uh within the norms Otherwise, you may not even be human anymore. And so when I look at it in that perspective, the witches really fit in with that. I mean, even, too, there's some cool overlaps with, like, uh, witches and uh, ceremonies that involve, like, the moon at night in nature and uh, werewolves, right, that are dependent on the moon. Uh, you can look at the, uh, the blended lines of gender norms that come there, like... Uh, like if you look at werewolves they the moon is kind of a, a feminine archetype which makes sense right because uh cycles <laughs> right like like if you are housing a body that has periods which literally means a period of time right <laughs> if you then you are dependent on a little bit more on cyclical nature um and the moon goes into very similar cycles uh as the cycles of uh a woman's body so uh, the moon becomes this feminine archetype fairly quickly within uh the consciousness and um there's something that's that's interesting about the, these werewolves that are man becoming beast when the moon is full right so when women are the most potent <laughs> um man can hold, no longer control himself and uh and th the way to get rid of that is through like you know, and again, some of these archetypes are stuff that have evolved later on, but uh, the silver bullets, right? Or the cross. So you become holy or uh, you get destroyed. So you assimilate or you get destroyed. And um, silver has an interesting thing. I think I'll probably talk about that a little later when it, uh, the, the idea of currency, <laughs> um, the idea of something that has monetary value, precious metals, all that sort of stuff. But uh, all that to say, there, there's... Oh, and, and then there's another one, too, that comes a little later, which is uh, mummies. And mummies being uh, another interesting case of these recurring cycles of mythology. This is later in the 1900s, 
but it's the same sort of thing where we invade a space and then there's fears about it after the fact. Like uh, a certain notion that maybe we have done something wrong, but we don't want to approach that on a conscious level. So we externalize it. We create a monster out of the curse of the mummy. Um, th this idea that uh, this will come back to us somehow gets gets added into these stories. Uh, I'm just looking real quick to see if there's anything else in here. Oh, yeah. Uh, Demeter, going back to Demeter with um, Persephone and the pomegranates. Uh, Demeter is highly related to the Eleusian mysteries, uh, which were kind of this non-locational... Well, there were temples... But it was more about a ceremony, and it, <laughs> it's a ceremony that has to do with dying to yourself. Uh, the idea is, if you can die before you die, then uh, you will be able to enter into a, a deeper mode of life. Um, and in these Elysian Mysteries, they don't quite know what this brew that was was done. Um, and, and this is way back in ancient uh, Greece and Rome, right? This is this is way, way back there. Um, but the idea is you would drink this brew and you'd have an experience and you'd come back changed from it. And as best as they can tell, it was probably ergot, which is really interesting because a lot of the mythologies through the ages of like witch's brew and things like that uh, seem to revolve around these same sort of uh, mushroom psychedelic use uh, that creates an altered state of consciousness. In fact, there's even theories that uh, the witches flying on brooms is actually, um, and this is a little vulgar, but uh, is actually a uh, concentrated substance, a hallucinogenic substance uh, that's then uh, absorbed through the skin, through contact, through, so, you know, through rubbing. Uh, through making contact down there. Uh, so again, we have sort of this relationship between um, a, a feminine sexuality and a, uh, and a drug use and <laughs> um, a, a horror over it, a fear over the, the unknown and the unexpected. Um, I guess I, as I'm thinking of that, like the, these feminine sexuality uh, that, you know, obviously that's another piece of the Puritan everything is like you, you got to keep yourself pure especially the women have to keep themselves pure for the sake of their husbands and um that was a big part of the salem witch trials was these accusations of uh wantonness and and uh promiscuity uh th this idea that if a woman is having desires uh it might be demonic it might be of the devil it might be something that needs to be rooted out and destroyed or uh made holy again somehow so uh yeah that's that seems to be a recurring thing that happens a lot with these modern ideas of uh monsters and uh things that we're afraid of uh coming off of these puritan values Right. Uh, again, you have Dracula and it's this this sexual they're seducing you. Right. Or being seduced in the case of the werewolves. Um, 
something about that that says that's wrong. And in the wake of that, too, uh, there's a very different approach between uh, the Puritans and the Native American population. The Native Americans, uh, especially like the Wampanoag tribe, their view on sexuality was essentially like uh, if you are creating a pact, essentially a marriage with someone else, uh, then you need to be uh, only with them and not with anybody else. But other than that, like like before you make that commitment, uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, having different partners and, and experimenting and doing all those sorts of things. And as, as well as that, obviously, there's just um, the difference in dress styles and stuff like that, right? Things being a little more revealing, things being a little more uh, open um, that would have caused a little bit of a stir for the Puritans. Um, and amid all that, too, is like not as many patriarchal norms, not as many uh, women are subservient to men sort of stuff within the Native American culture. It's more uh, that that men and women have different roles, but they are equal roles. Like, uh, you know, men might uh, form more treaties with other tribes, and in that sense, they will be the authority. But uh, for matters of how the tribe functions internally, uh, it's more matriarchal. The, the elders would be women. Uh, you know, men might be a little bit more in charge of hunting and women would be more in charge of the gathering, but there's not a, uh, one of them is below the other or, or one of them is the one that's making all the decisions. Everybody's making decisions. It's very egalitarian in a true sense. And, um, you know, th there's a certain sense, I think of, of that within the Puritan culture being interpreted as uh, barbaric or interpreted as, uh savage and backwards and in need of correction and so as, as i look through all these things getting these ideas of horned gods and packs with the devil uh you really start to see how some of these things that were turned into uh something that's evil were things that were actually more originally about stuff being in balance and allowing the cycles and the seasons to to be there but uh have been literally demonized right <laughs> these uh these benevolent spirits or, or these these beliefs in these benevolent spirits uh don't really go away they just the spirits become evil um and perhaps that's not inaccurate because you get out of relationship with them and they do twist and they do turn, you know, the land becomes an evil place because you're not in relationship with it. It becomes a, a place that's hard to toil. You know, it becomes less of a paradise because uh, you are separating yourself from it because you don't believe it to be a paradise. There's, there's some self-fulfilling prophecy there. And so um, just thinking about that, well, looks like I, I need to, uh, check again and and see where i'm at and, and kind of regather so give me another second okay so as i'm looking through my stuff and regathering and realizing what i haven't gone over yet and the things that i want to get to i'm realizing this is going to be a two-part episode so i guess that fits because we are going over two holidays but um i will go ahead and upload this one and you guys can enjoy it and uh part two 
I will continue to work on. And uh, we can get that out soon, uh, the next day or two. I think that that's probably the best bet. And uh, I'll see you next time.